0: stories, and today we get into the heart of the story of one of America's greatest storytellers. A lot of people don't know much about Mark Twain beyond the fact that their high school teachers compelled them to read The Adventures of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. But few of us know the story of how Mark Twain squandered away all of his money through a series of bad investments, then how he would dig himself out of debt. Today, we have the author of the book, Chasing the Last Laugh. Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. And it's by author Richard Zacks, who is a best-selling New York Times author, author of The Pirate Hunter, among many others. And thanks for joining us today, Richard. Uh, Great to be here. You bet. And, you know, I mentioned that uh, folks compelled us to read Mark Twain, and of all the things that we read that we were forced to read, this is one of the things most of us actually understood and loved before we even begin with the book what is it about mark twain that you think connected to so many generations of readers
1: i think it's his humor and his his uh kind of child childlike wonder and the uh, mixed with cynicism i mean he did so many things his range as a writer is about the most extreme you can imagine to m- to make fun of religion and then to uh celebrate uh, a runaway slave to i mean his it just boggles my mind. The more I read, the more I realized uh, how far he'd go in different directions, and how human he was. I mean, how he he was able to pinpoint, you know, human emotions about about guilt and acceptance and generosity and greed. And you know, it's kind of you you if you paraphrase a Mark Twain story, it, it just kind of sits there, and and you feel like an idiot. And then you read it, and you realize oh my god, the expressions that he came up with and the way he said it, and, and it, it just feels, um, frankly, so American.
0: Um, yeah, and you know, Mark Twain's books can't be pitched. I mean, if he were to pitch his book, <laughs> right. it would not end well.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I I was sort of surprised by that, because, uh, you know, uh, we'll get to it later, but he, he winds up telling about 30 of his best stories during this Round the World comedy tour, and so occasionally I would just try out on Friends, just paraphrasing... What the thing was about, and you know, I might say it's, uh, oh, he stole a watermelon, and the watermelon was green, and he tried to make the uh, the farmer take it back, and it just it sounds idiotic, yeah. you know, it just doesn't kind of, you know, uh, but when he tells it, it's just the most amazing so or the, or the jumping frog. I mean, when you, you know, I don't want to blow any punchlines, but but a lot of these, it, a lot of it's in the telling, and he's just a master.
0: Well, in fact, we're doing this summer. We're going to send a correspondent out for that frog jumping contest out in Calaveras County because Twain just understood the American psyche. He was like a, almost a Tocqueville-type character. He understood the heartbeat of America and made us laugh about ourselves.
1: Well, what I think is great, since you did bring up the jumping frog, um, it's kind of a perfect segue, because pe- people didn't realize about the p- private Mark Twain. The private Mark Twain, I mean, that was the first story that put him on the map. That was the one that made the National Magazine. That's the one that got him his first book deal. And he understood gambling because he was an inveterate gambler. He was just so addicted to risk. And, you know, people, people write up the Mark Twain and they talk about literary this and that and, you know, uh, religion and King Leopold and all those other things. But this man loved to gamble, and he loved to gamble on pool, and he loved to play poker, and he would bet on things. And, and that's kind of what leads into my whole story because this side of his personality made him want to gamble on making huge amounts of money.
0: Yeah, indeed. And by the way, gambling, for for those of us who like it, and I love a great poker game, America Richard. loves a great poker game, <laughs> but what do we love? It's not just the risk, Richard. It's the camaraderie. It's the jokes. It's the tells. It's the games and the gamesmanship. It basically amplifies all of the things in life, takes us out of our boring lives And it's almost a heightened reality that we wish we could live in
1: more often. Yeah, I agree with you. Because all of life is some kind of risk. I mean, you just cross the street and you're risking. You drive 75 instead of 45, you're risking. But what I love, I did a piece a long time ago about a a bookmaker named Bob the Man Martin. And he said, the greatest thrill in life is winning a bet. The second greatest thrill is losing one. <laughs> it's so true. You know what I mean? Like, people who don't gamble don't understand that. They think I'm just trying to, like, show off with some quote or something. But it's you want action. I mean, I sometimes only bet, like, five bucks on a on a football game, and then I can watch Northern Illinois play <laughs> – Duquesne, and I care about that game. That's
0: so true. That is so So, true.
1: People just don't get that. And Twain, oh, God, he really got it. He was addicted.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and some people can get in trouble from gambling, and some people can just enjoy it. Well, the same with alcohol. And so it's like all things in the end. One or two more things. I mean, we're obviously spending some time on the book, but I want to just dig in a little bit more to Twain and his writing because he busted all conventions. I mean, this was not a guy who used proper grammar. This wasn't a guy who the, the, the fancy pants in right. New York City would think, my goodness, this is the next Proust or this is our right. Proust. I mean, talk about Mark Twain as a writer and what conventions he just busted.
1: Well, what I think is so amazing is is people don't realize that for the first 60 years of his life, he was known as a funny travel writer. I mean, everyone wants to forget that. All the people that write the essays at the universities, you know, he was known for Innocence Abroad, which was A groundbreaking travel book that basically made fun of all the pretentious travelers to Europe. I mean, it it, it (laughs) is—it talks about you know break. Oh man, I don't know if you've read it all recently, but it's it's laugh out loud funny. I mean, after the first thirty pages, they're a little slow, and then after that, it just flies. But he does things like. He keeps torturing, like, the guides in Italy when they start getting all passionate about the statues, and Twain will say, is he dead yet? You know? <laughs> or, like, the boatmen uh, who are charging excessively to cross, like, the the, the uh, Sea of Galilee, he says, um, uh, Twain says, now I know why Jesus learned to walk on water. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true, yeah. so um, true. Right, so he, he was groundbreaking, and he, he, I don't know if people realize, but he started by basically being a, a travel writer, and they, he did well enough, they sent him to what was then the Sandwich Islands, which was Hawaii, and he wrote, his stuff is so irreverent. I mean, he basically makes cannibal jokes all over the place. I mean, he was kind of unpolished at the time, but um, he came back and gave these, these basically stand-up comedy, and he'll actually, he turns to the audience and says, does anyone have a baby I can use? You know, and they know it's a cannibal joke, you yep, know, and yep. I mean, so, yeah, he, he was great.
0: And by the way, as is the case with so many things, the reason what you did when telling the story to others is great comedy is always about words falling next to other words. It's music, it's timing, it's so much more. When we come back, Richard Zacks, the book Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. More after these messages. Our American Stories. You're listening to Chris Stapleton's former band, The Steel Drivers. And as Americana as Americana gets. And nothing is more American than Mark Twain, the writing of Mark Twain, the life of Mark Twain, frankly. And we're talking to author Richard Zacks, his great new book, Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. And while we were in the break, Richard, you had asked about just sharing one more story about well share it with our audience where we left to off tell
1: you, you know he, yes he's, he was known for comedy and he was known and he was known a little bit as a young adult writer, but he really wanted to be a literary author and it's to, he wanted to be like Henry James and Edith Wharton on some level. He wanted all that praise, which just today you know kind of cracks us up because he got it all through Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, but he was actually trying to do I mean I think of it as kind of like John Stewart doing that movie Rosewater right. it's a little a little bit of a slow movie it's a very you know praiseworthy endeavor that he was trying to do but it's like no matter how good you are at one thing you want to be something else and the, and the other th- part of him that wanted to be something else is he had grown up so poor he just wanted to be as rich as Rockefeller he wanted to be rich as a Vanderbilt which kind of leads into the whole rest of the story here
0: indeed and I, I find it particularly with comics who at one point or another just want to be taken seriously right and I we're just preparing for a Tom Hanks hour coming down the road and Tom Hanks was at this critical juncture in his life where he just didn't want to do another movie with a dog and him yeah. being a goofball and, and if you remember His agent got him a script, which he took for nothing, and the movie was Philadelphia. And though he worked at, you know, scale, it changed his life, and people began to take him seriously. And I think the same with Robin Williams, who did some remarkable straight acting, and it showed people that there was more than a red ball at the end of a guy's nose.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, Twain, Twain pulled it off, too, but he eventually had to discover he could do it through satire, you know, through really dark humor. I mean, he couldn't do it by his Joan of Arc. I mean, I don't think anyone of your listeners should bother reading it personally. But, you know, he was trying to write this high literary thing, and he didn't pull it off, but that's fine.
0: No, and Oscar Wilde suffered the same thing. I mean, uh, no disrespect to his, his his attempt at the same thing, but we remember him for the importance of being earnest. We remember yeah. him for his humor and his, and his wit and his satire.
1: Totally. Um, yeah, Mark Twain, he, was, see, he wrote a line, something like a classic, a book that everyone buys and no one reads. Right. You know, and everyone thinks, well, how could he do that? Because he wrote these classics. He can't mean it. Well, at the time he wrote it, he was bitter. Because his <laughs> books were not considered classics. Right,
0: right. Yeah. And, and luckily now they are, and he wasn't around to really ever recognize that. Now, you've studied the man's whole life. Richard, right. what were some of the more surprising things you found out about Mark Twain?
1: Well, I would say, uh, you know, I didn't know how much he liked to drink, smoke, curse, and gamble. I mean, that's like the America, that's the beyond the trifecta. What do we have when it's four things? I mean, he superfecta.
0: Uh, that's a superfecta. <laughs>
1: yeah, I gamble.
0: Yeah. I love the races, so I know what a quinella is. I know it all, Richard.
1: <laughs> okay, superfecta, man. Yep. So he, 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 he. You know, I mean, and what I, I love all that about him. I mean, he was really one of the most flawed human beings, and that's what, you know, gives him all that humanity, you know, that that he liked to do all those things. And then to make it even better, he married the most proper woman. You know, it's kind of like Margaret Dumont back in the Marx Brothers movies or something. I mean, Livy was an heiress in a provincial town of Elmira, New York, and she thought there were ways that you had it. She, She got mad at him for, like, not bowing properly to noblemen, you know? I mean, it's just, it's, it's kind of, it's this wonderful comedy that's behind the scenes. So oh. I think it may, his maxims are, and all those great one-liners are kind of like, he distilled it from his life, and that's what's kind of interesting.
0: Well, and the last thing Mark Twain needed is to be married to someone like Mark Twain, and I think the same for his exactly. wife. Exactly. What an awful marriage that would have been. Tell me more about his business investments and his inventions. He, he's almost like a Ralph <laughs> Cramden type of guy. That's
1: perfect. How did he lose all his money? <laughs> Well, before we get to that, I want some of the inventions, because they're just, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, he, he he invented special clamps so that toddlers couldn't kick the blankets off of their beds, bed clamps, he thought he was going to make money on. He got a patent for that. He um, he invented a history game that had um, all these, uh, you know, all the questions, who were the kings of England and all the rest of it, but he didn't take time on the board, and it used push pins, so basically it destroyed the board every time you played it, you know. He just... He was all over the map. On the other hand, he did make one invention that actually did well for him, um, the Mark Twain scrapbook. It's pretty much been forgotten, but he's the first guy to think that you could do dried strips of glue on a page and then moisten them with a sponge or a rag and then put the photograph or the card or the newspaper clipping into the scrapbook. And he patented it. And it, it would have made him a ton of money, but he picked a con man to market it for him, this guy named Dan Sloat. And uh, Sloat wound up going bankrupt like three times and not paying Twain what he was supposed to get. But uh, Twain once wrote one time, when he, after he got a royalty check, he said, my blank book makes more than my written ones.
0: <laughs> hey, that's the thing about being a businessman. I mean, in the end, you've got to have great business instincts, pick your vendors right. And this right. may not have been Mark Twain's great talent.
1: No, it really wasn't. And he, the trouble is he had this moonshot enthusiasm, and he had no patience for details. So he would just get so excited about some some new invention or something that he would hear about. So the way he lost his money was ba- basically two, two areas. Um, the page typesetter, which was, you know, he grew up as, a, he had been a printer's devil. He'd been one of those guys that had to take those tiny bits of metal and drop them in so that the newspaper could be printed, you know, a little, each letter, each individual. And he just thought if anyone could automate that, it would be worth a fortune, and he was absolutely right. The trouble was there were about thirty different main guys trying to do it, and the one he picked did not win. You know, he picked uh, James Page, and he said, "Page, uh, Page, uh, you know, he could he could talk a talk a fish to t- come out of water and take a walk with him." You know, he he just uh, a hustler. He was a hustler. Yep. You know, and at first uh, Twain called him the Shakespeare of mechanical invention, which was great. Twain would write for places like the Atlantic, and he would talk up these guys you know meanwhile he was investing in them at the same time you know he did it
0: later again <laughs> that's, oh, so. that's a little bit of a hustle there right as we speak yep. yeah set yep, the yep. scene for me surrounding then his bankruptcy but i think we're already getting an idea of why he went bankrupt uh but he, he he went bankrupt in 1894 right how did he react to this and how did the country react because this was a very public thing
1: Right. It was, it was, he had kept it a complete secret. And the, and he, what, what bankrupt was actually his publishing company. He had, he'd done a tricky thing. He had created his own publishing company, but he named it after his uh, nephew, Charles Webster. So not everyone knew that it was Mark Twain's own publishing company. So he had kind of insulated himself from any of the problems. And then in 1894, it went bankrupt. And there were headlines. Mark Twain fails. No joke. And you know he it was so humiliating because he had always sold you know basically he was a good talker, and he 'd sold himself as a brilliant businessman as his own publisher as a, you know the guy, and he still thought the page typesetter was going to it wound up being taylor 's linotype the linotype took over, but he, he still thought page might win out, so this was just so unbelievably humiliating for him, and he went to Europe he could no longer afford to live in his own home in Hartford, which is Just amazing. And rather than he had seven servants at the time, including a a black butler, Um, instead of cutting back on the servants and just living there quietly, they couldn't stand the shame in the wealthy community of doing that. So they went to Europe in 1891 and uh, they didn't they didn't move back permanently for um, for nine years.
0: How old was he when this happened, Richard?
1: Uh, he was let 's see eighteen thirty five so he was fifty nine fifty eight he was in his late fifties
0: and that 's tough when it
1: happens yeah. at, at that age he, he, think about it he was he was considered you know the greatest funny travel writer he was the maker of speeches he was you know he was on his way a lot of people did take his literary stuff seriously so and he was just he was very, very successful, and then this was so humiliating, and he, and he took it, you know, he tried to put a good spin on it, but there are lines in his in his private notebooks where he just talks about hell and, and, and you know, the poor house, and he actually talks about suicide. I mean, he says that, that his wife's forbidden him, but that's how dark it got for him.
0: Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about his wife, we're going to talk about what he did uh, as it relates to all the people he owed money to, and how he got himself out of this mess. It's actually a really remarkable story, Richard, and thanks for writing this and a, a side note uh you know what what Twain was going through when he was sixty uh, I think you're just dead right i mean this is that was the life expectancy of human beings right then at that time Richard. Oh, it,
1: was, it was just brutal to have it happen had that i mean at thirty or something you know you roll with it and you keep, you got like, time Sam Walton went bankrupt at, in his late thirties, I think you know yeah. the Walton stores failed, you know but yeah. yeah. But 60,
0: oof. Really rough. And by the way, you know, a couple of decades later, when Wall Street collapses, people just jump out of windows. I mean, this is, the I think, the number one cause of suicide for men is financial failure. Right. Uh, and, and we know this. And so when we come back, let's dig into the, the rest of the story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour, Go to Amazon. Order this book now. It makes a great, great gift for a father, for a reader, for a mother, for a friend. And you'll laugh a lot. I promise. You'll laugh a lot. And then you'll want to pick up the Twain catalog. And when we come back, I'm also going to tell Richard about one of my favorite Mark Twain essays about, well, someone passing gas in front of the Queen of Elizabeth. Uh, Queen Elizabeth. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. In stories and we continue our conversation with richard zacks author of chasing the last laugh mark twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour and when we left off mark twain was staring down bankruptcy he was old he was 60 tired disappointed dead broke what happens next richard
1: well, he has to do something he really didn't want to do. He has to do a round-the-world lecture tour. They called it lectures, but it really was stand-up comedy And when he did it. And um, everyone thinks of Mark Twain as loving to do, you know, it's the Hal Holbrook thing, loving to do public speeches and all the rest of it. He actually uh, dreaded it. He. Um, he thought that people he treated you know thought of him as a clown. He said once an audience sees you stand on your head they expect you to remain in that position. Right. And you know right. here he was trying to become more of a literary figure and you know he's 60s not you know it's not and he had to go and make people laugh. So here he is miserable from losing all his money and we didn't even talk about it. he lost his wife's money. I mean oh. I don't I don't know if you're married or not but losing my wife's money that scares me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, luckily,
0: my wife didn't have any money in her family, so I, I can never get jammed up like that, Richard. Oh,
1: you know, that's actually really good. Lucky he, me. He, he inherited, uh, I mean, his wife inherited the equivalent of, you know, millions of dollars. She was a coal heiress, and her father died suddenly the first year of their marriage, and he moved into a mansion thanks to that. And uh, he succeeded in basically losing <laughs> losing just about all her money. Oh, know? so he and,
0: lost his money and her money. That's just uh, brutal. Whose idea was this tour, Richard?
1: Uh, it was his idea. I mean, he he knew that the only, back then, if you think about, it there's no radio, there's no TV, there's no internet. Obviously, there's none there's none of those things. The way you made the biggest money was people coming to a theater, and some of the highest paid people of that era were the actors. And uh, Twain knew that he could make. Uh, I mean, the highest paid were like the musicians. Um, there was um, uh, what's his name with all the hair, the Polish uh, piano. Blah. Anyhow, so. Um, Twain knew the biggest, you know, he could charge a dollar a head, and a dollar was then uh, a day's wage to come and hear him talk. So that was the way. And, and he knew that he, he couldn't just do the United States. He, he thought that he needed to, uh, you know, do the whole British Empire, wherever they spoke English. So it was this incredibly ambitious speaking tour.
0: Yeah, where did he go, and how long was he out there?
1: He was out there for um, for one year, basically, and he went to 71 different cities, he did 122 nights of performing. He would, you know, back then we forget how you travel. He was 100 nights at sea in order to, to go to all those places. He had to take, you know, a boat from the West Coast to Australia and a boat from Australia to India. And um, he uh, he played small theaters in the United States, and then he played a lot larger ones once, once, once he left. Um, he, he, the, um, he got in so much trouble with the bankruptcy that he literally had to change his tour because he was liable to be sued in the state of New York. So he had to leave New York State, and he was a little worried that anywhere in the United States they might take his, his uh, lecture, his, you know, the money from the, uh, the audience, and put it towards his debts. So he was pretty eager, to. mean, he never said, I'm running away, but he, he wanted to get out of the U.S., and he didn't want to return until he could know that no sheriff could, could you know, take any of the money.
0: And he was unique in his approach to to stand-up comedy, and that is he didn't just do punchlines and running jokes. I mean, he told funny stories. Right. You have one on page 182, okay. uh, the one about growing old. Share that with us if you could, Richard.
1: Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. He, um, he, he, it, was after, it was late one night, and he was in Australia. He was in a club in Melbourne, and he mentions that – I'm, I'm going to try and do it. Here we go. Right. Uh, my, my friend on the right and I were talking just now about growing old. I said, I thought that if I had created the human race, and then everyone laughs, you know, and someone yelled out, you did some of them. Um, (laughs) Oh, I could have done it, he says back. Um, I was asked nothing about it, and I didn't suggest anything. But I thought if I had created the human race and had discovered that they were a kind of failure and had drowned them out, well, I would recognize that that was a good thing. (laughs) And then fortified by experience, I would start the thing on a different plan. I would have no more of that 99 years business from the Old Testament. I wouldn't let people grow that old. I would cut them off at 30, because a man's youth is the thing he loves to think about, and it's the thing that he regrets. It is the one part of his life that he most thoroughly enjoys. My friend on the right suggests that we go as far as 40 years, as he doesn't want any of his 40 years rubbed out. Well, perhaps you really might go up to 40, because then you get a perspective upon youth. And that has its values. That has its charm. But oh dear me, I never would have created age. Age has its own value, but that is to other people, not to those who have it.
0: <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. And 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 what you're getting there is that it's the Twain genius. He's talking about something very serious. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. always, always using that wit. Uh, tell but, me this: when he was doing the tour, Richard, what? What, was, what were his intentions as it related to the debts he owed? Talk well, about that and Livy's uh, role in this as well.
1: Sure. Um, but maybe we could just hit a little on his, his delivery style just because I think it's so unusual. Absolutely. We, uh, yeah. He, no, I mean, I didn't deliver that the way he would have because I think I'd, I, I couldn't and I would put you to sleep. But he, he did it with, with um, a slow, slow voice and he did long pauses. And he just stood there without smiling. He never smiled. Nobody ever remembers him laughing hard at anyone else's joke. He was one of those comics that never laughed at anyone else's materials. And he put, he sometimes even put his jaw on his hand and just, just stood there. And it takes a while, but if you start reading his speeches and you read them that way, they're way funnier, yeah. but it's just, it's just really hard to do, and really un- the only person I can think is like Stephen Wright. I was just you know? about
0: to say Stephen Wright because that was the thing you'd look at if you'd ever read those one-liners. I mean, they're okay, but right. you watch him deliver them; they're so deadpan and it's so slow. I mean, it's like paint drying slow.
1: He said, "Breakfast anytime," so I ordered French toast from the Renaissance. Right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So Twain, Twain's delivery really is at the heart of it. So all the people, all the critics would afterwards say, God, I loved his performance, but it's, until they invent some way of recording and showing all at the same time, there'll be no, no one can ever explain why this was so great. And, and uh, we have the transcripts, a lot of the speeches, and, and that was a little bit of a challenge trying to get across. So I had to put in a lot of bits about, the newspapers would actually write in where people laughed and where he paused. And that helps a lot to try and, try and get, get it, uh,
0: well, can you imagine, Richard, trying to explain to people through a transcript the epic hits that Rodney Dangerfield did on the Johnny Carson show on yeah, paper? I mean, I mean it's, a, it's a waste.
1: Yeah, it is. Stand-up comedy, really. Like, I just went to a Louis C.K. at Madison Square Garden, and it was amazing. But if I saw the transcript of that, I probably would just go, what? That's funny. That's know, what I paid for? That's yeah. what I paid for? Yeah, so that, that's a little bit of a challenge, but luckily I had a lot of Twain's notebooks and Twain's, um, you know, he wrote a travel, pe- travel book about this whole thing. So I had a lot of things that he meant to be read as well as the speeches, you know. So basically for the speeches, he took 30 of his best stories that he had basically been telling for the last 30 years and he, he cherry picked, um, you know, five to 10 minute bits. You know, one goes as long as 15 or so, but, and he would just, he would deliver six or seven of them every night and just stand there. <laughs> and tell these stories. And he was so unusual. I mean, they were so kind of droll and also really smart, and they were so American. They were about buying his first horse, and they were about the jumping frog, and they were about stealing a watermelon. And they played incredibly well around the world.
0: Well, when we come back, we'll close out this hour with Richard Zachs, and we'll talk about what ends up happening. I mean, does he pay off his debts? Uh, what happens to his psychological state? Does he end up being happy again, or at least something resembling happy? And we'll talk a little bit more of this whole idea of the man having to go out and make people laugh for a living. It's a hard living, folks, by the way. Think of the number of comedians who end up killing themselves. It's really, really staggering. You're out there alone, and you got to make people laugh no matter what mood you're in. And, well, no one takes you seriously. At a certain age, at a certain time in your life... Especially a guy like Twain who was looking for status, wanted to be wealthy and seen of as important. This had to be tough, even as he was succeeding and, well, trying to pay down those debts. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Chasing the Last Laugh. Richard Zacks is the author. Buy it on Amazon. It'll make a great, great gift. stories we continue with richard zacks and his book chasing the last laugh so mark mark twain is traveling around the world richard how did people overseas take to twain you know jerry seinfeld has written about and talked about how hard it is to take comedy from one culture to another because so much of humor has to do with cultural references and cultural knowledge how did he do overseas
1: uh, he, he was a huge hit. I mean, he did tailor a little of his, um, material. He wrote a poem about, um, you know, about Australia that was the most ridiculous poem. He, he chose the, um, platypus as the Australian national animal. And, uh, you know, he, he just, uh, he was just an enormous hit. I'd say 95% of all the critical reviews are, uh, are positive. I'd say he sold out about 95% of the venues. Uh, he just, he just did incredibly well, and he was basically treated like royalty by the wealthy people and by the the, the local artists, and uh, you know that was also really nice for him and Livy and his one daughter that went with him.
0: He had to love that, actually. I mean, that's yeah. in the end what he was chasing was that respect,
1: respect, and that and status. Got, absolutely, and he got he. You know what? He was almost a bigger literary figure in the British Empire on some level than he was at home. Um, it's hard to believe, but they had uh, some some British critics had just loved Huckleberry Finn and his early travel book. Uh, he wrote one that included, you know, where British travelers tended to travel in in Germany and in Europe, and uh, it was just it was a huge success. And uh, but I just want to tell you about what, I think what's one of the best celebrity perks any traveling you know performer has ever gotten. Yep. Um, <laughs> They set aside 35 miles of the Darjeeling Himalayan Railroad and let him use it as a personal roller coaster. Get out. Yeah. yeah. And he just had a six-seater hand car, and they just going down. I mean, these were steep hills. There were four zigzags that they had to reverse the direction of the car in order to get down. The hill was so steep. They had four horizontal loops where you go loop around through tunnels. And Twain just call, called it the absolute best day of the trip and one of the best days of his life. And uh, he just loved the idea of his wife and daughter sitting there. No one mentioned seatbelts, so he's sitting there in these open cars on canvas back seats that are bolted down, going down the Himalayas. You know, it was just—it was great.
0: And by the way, at sixty, this just proves his affection for risk, Richard. He's totally, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah. shows it.
1: Yeah. So the tour,
0: so the tour is a hit, and people are wanting to know how's he doing on that debt-paying thing.
1: Right. And, and he's not really saying clear out cuz he's too smart to give him a straight answer. And basically what happens is he goes to London to write the book and uh rumors start swirling that um that he's he's living alone in poverty. And then, you know, one newspaper wants to beat another and one says that Twain has died in poverty. So, uh this is when he he has says his famous line, they sent a reporter and the reporter it would, the mission was send 500 words of Twain um, dying in poverty send a thousand words of twain dead right. and uh... and then he said that uh, that let me see if i can get it right here he said that um, that uh... his cousin james ross clemens was ill the report of my illness grew out of his illness the report of my death was an exaggeration <laughs> that's great and, and that's the one so anyhow so he he um, he didn't pay it off from the trip. A lot of people, a lot of scholars have written that he paid it off from the trip. He basically made maybe half at most from the trip, and a lot of that was because Livy he thought Livy had to stay in the best hotel everywhere and travel first class everywhere because she was an heiress. So he literally squandered a lot of his money by because um, back then performers paid their own expenses. Yeah. Um, and um, so then he had to write a travel book. So there he was in London, and he was, you know, actually, I mean, did not really have time to talk about it. He had a family tragedy, so he was in an absolutely dreadful, dark mood, and he still had to write a funny travel book. And uh, But he did it, and um, the book sold, sold well, and that paid off the rest of his debt. And then he—he he, he his other daughter got epilepsy right around this time, and so they stayed in Europe another year. To try and see if they could cure her. He wanted to come home with her healthy and all his debts paid, but, but she, you know, you can't cure it like that. So yeah, yeah. anyhow, he comes home in October 1900 to an absolute hero's welcome. And so this story has a very happy ending. He was just acclaimed as, I mean, 1893 was basically like a depression. They call it the panic of 1893. And everyone was, I mean, I use the word hiding behind bankruptcy laws, taking advantage of bankruptcy laws. Everyone would phrase it. Mark Twain did not he paid off his debts and i'm telling you that was an inspiration to common americans to to just to everyone that he d- he didn't do the wall street thing he didn't do the high finance he m- mark twain our beloved writer paid his debts and he came home and and just was incredibly warmly embraced he just had un- unlimited opportunities to speak and to write and to do do anything he wanted and uh, He had a a friend, H.H. Rogers, who was uh, a big investor and a man at um, Standard Oil, and uh, he took, when Twain finally built a a nest egg again, he took that nest egg for Twain and he tripled it for him, just over a couple months, just because there was no such thing as insider trading in 1890s, didn't come until 1934, so anyhow, Twain... It gets literary fame. He gets, he gets all the money back. You know, things go well. Was he happy was Twain ever happy? Eh, I don't course, know. Of you
0: course. Know. He's a, if yeah. you're a comedy writer and you're a writer, yeah. happiness is, well, that's a silly term almost of art. Right. And uh, let's talk about that stop in India. Talk about Twain's adventures there.
1: Uh, okay. Twain, it, you know, he was, he had, we hadn't really mentioned that how sick he was a lot of the trip. He was sick. About uh, four to 30, 40 days out of this trip, he had um, terrible bronchitis, which might have had something to do with him smoking 20 cigars a day. But um, he uh, also had a, uh, these these boils on his body. They, call, they called them carbuncles. So he had been sick. And so when he gets to India, he's sick the first two weeks, and you just think, oh, it's just not going to be a very exciting time for him. Well, he thought India was the carnival. He just loved it. He, you know, seen the the. The snake charmers and the uh, the holy men on beds and nails, and you know the women with the midriff showing, and uh, Twain absolutely loved India, and uh, yeah, he, I mean, I don't know. Just, how did the Indian?
0: How did the Indians? Uh, Indian people uh, react to him?
1: Well, that's the thing. Um, they didn't really know who he was. You know, I mean, it's a, you know, there. I think it was only like two hundred and fifty thousand white British you know, soldiers and administrators basically governed the the country. Right. And most of them recognized him. But, you know, Twain, you know, as much as he claimed to be bothered by it, he had a very unusual hairstyle. In that era, nobody wore their, their hair quite like that. Every every reviewer comments on the hair because it was such a bushy, curly thing. You mess. Know? It, was it was
0: such a mess.
1: Such a mess, yeah. right. Right, that's who I was thinking. Paderewski was another person with, you know, a mess of a hair that was really popular. Um, so, Twain, Twain loved India and he, 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 you know, went sightseeing and, you know, in, in his travel book he, he makes fun of um, the missionaries, uh, the Christian missionaries there. He said they've had no luck converting the Hindus, but they've converted four monkeys with 11 more hopefully interested.
0: <laughs> that's that's tough. That is tough. Yeah. And that's the thing he pulled no punches. And and nobody back then was doing what he was doing, were they, Richard?
1: No, not really. He 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 pushed it and then he really pushed it with his, you know, satire later and Livy didn't want him to publish a lot of it, but that's who she was and, you know, he 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 did wind up you know eventually especially after she passed in 1904 you know more of it came out
0: now he got settled finally he's back in the united states his dear friend who's a a a real great businessman and investor makes a lot more money from him does twain learn or does he gamble again what happens before this all
2: ends
1: oh man so twain gets back he's now wealthy again and uh, he can afford to live at home buys another house um and uh, of course, he invests again, and he gambles again, and um, he get, invests in a thing called plasmon, which is a, a protein powder that 's made from you know leftover dairy products, and uh, he loses like thirty thousand dollars on that, and uh, which
0: was real money back then
1: yeah, thirty times thirty it 's basically a million yep. so a guy who 's finally gotten himself back in order again, I mean his whole estate when he when he passed, is depending on how you value the books, you could value it as low as two hundred thousand. So to lose thirty thousand is a lot of money. You bet. Uh, uh, yeah. So he still he he can't get over the book. Bu- and and H. H Rogers, his his investor friend, tried really hard to get him to stop stop investing. You know, at one point Twain Twain wrote him, "I've landed a big fish today." He found somebody that. Could um, duplicate uh, designs for uh, clothing with some kind of you know early photocopy right. type machine, and he wanted to just sink everything into that. I mean, he was he was a little out of control. Yeah, well, I,
0: and again, I, as I as I heard about this story and started poking around, I just kept thinking of Ralph Cramden in the sense that Ralph represented <laughs> in the Honeymooners that every man who always had some big idea and his poor wife had to deal with it, and none of them ever panned out.
1: Right. Well, I, I, uh, when when my wife and I got married, um, I actually quoted from the Honeymooners in the Wedding Vows. I, he was uh, Ralph had some future advice for his brother-in-law, Stanley. He said, he said, Stanley, when Agnes says I do, that's the last decision you allow her to make.
0: <laughs> I'm the king of my castle. Remember <laughs> yeah, some, that? I'm the king of my castle.
1: My father-in-law comes up, future father-in-law comes up to me and shakes my hand and says... Uh, You don't think you're going to get away with that stuff with my daughter, do you? (laughs) I said, no, sir, she gave me permission to say it.
0: (laughs) Oh, you can't beat it. Well, Richard, thanks so much for doing this, and what a great project. What a great read, Chasing the Last Laugh. And, folks, go to Amazon.com and get it. It's Chasing the Last Laugh, again, Mark Twain's raucous and redemptive round-the-world comedy tour. The writer, Richard Zacks, and the writer he's writing about, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, American fiction writer, and the funniest, Mark Twain. This is Our American Stories. Thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Hey, thanks a lot. You bet. And you can get all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done hours on everybody from Frank Sinatra to Amart Ertegen, and not many folks can say they do that kind of thing. Take it out with some great American music. And this is our American stories. And for the hour, we're going to talk about the life of Pat Conroy. And if you don't know him, you're going to and we're done and you're going to like him. And he was a great American writer. The great Santini and the Prince of Tides were turned into two of the finest movies about fathers and sons. And my goodness, Pat Conroy had a tough dad. A Marine Corps fighter pilot who, as he often said, was raised to be in war but never got to fight in one so the home front became a battlefield and I think some of the most honest writing about craziness in family and every family's got some crazy in it and father and son relationships are some of the toughest and the greatest writers have dug down deep into that well from Arthur Miller straight to Bruce Springsteen I think it's what makes those guys all so good, and what brings them so close to their audience is the writing, honestly, about their fathers. Fathers they love and, in many respects, hate. And so I wanted to have you hear a little bit about Pat Conroy and his life. First, here's Pat talking about his mom.
2: The reading life was inspired without question by my mother. And I did not realize this, that when my mother read to me and my brothers and sisters every day before we went to bed at night. I did not realize that would become my writing voice, the voice I would hear when I'd go to a table. That would become the voice I'd read to my own children when I taught in school, when I read something to my wife. I did not understand she was plotting this thing to take over my life. Because one thing about my mother, she made me obsessed with books. And not only obsessed, I live through books, and not living through books was not living itself. And my mother, we're not sure she got out of high school, but she taught herself, and she ate up every single library of every town we ever entered. No one ever checked out more books than Peg Conroy.
0: Again, his mom never goes to college, inspires her son to read, and he becomes one of America's finest novelists, so... Never take for granted what influence, folks, you have as parents on your kids' lives. Books were life-changing to Pat Conroy. Take a listen to this.
2: Books are life-changing. I try to write about the life-changing books. I try to write the books that led me to others, and that is one of the great gifts of books. You read one, and it leads you on a pathway that you did not know you would take. Uh, When I went to England, I did not have any idea, by turning a corner... I would read the complete works of Dickens. Turn another corner, I'd read the complete works of Thackeray. Uh, look across the street and Yeats would flower open for me. Uh, Jane Austen. I mean, I, it, it occurred to me so many times that I had to become aware of just what would be happening at the time it happened. But that was one of the glories of living to me, not one of the sorrows.
0: He tells a story here in this interview about how after one of his successful books, The Prince of Tides, which is really dark and really tough, and it's clearly about his family and craziness in his family, a smug, young, very seemingly happy couple comes up and, well, they seem to think that they're very different than the lives he's writing about. Listen to Pat Conroy's exchange with this one particular fellow.
2: Yeah, I think The Prince of Tides just came out. And he says, Hey man, your family's nuts, huh? I said, Yeah. Pretty much so. He said, Boy, well, you can sure tell from reading that book. I said, Yeah, you can. I said, How's your family, pal? And he looks at me and he says, Oh, my family's great. Great. Right. I said, Now that we're having a conversation, let's be honest. How far? We have to go before we hit the first crazy in your family, <laughs> mom, <laughs> dad, sister, brother, aunt. His wife broke and finally said, His mother's nuts, <laughs> she's completely nuts. And I said, See what I mean? I said, Generally, it's not far from any of us, it's you know, it's around the corner there. Sometimes in my family it's much closer than I'm comfortable with.
0: <laughs> much closer. But that's the thing about writing and real writing it makes us all feel less alone. So what would you like the fans to get out of their reading life? Take a listen.
2: I would like people, my readers, my fans to get out of my reading life this. I'd like them to see it as the beginning of a journey. I'd like them to see what happened to me in my journey. Because the one thing I can promise them, if they take it seriously, if they are serious readers, if they are serious imaginers, if they are serious thinkers, they don't know where this journey is going to end. It's a voyage of a lifetime. It will end with my last conscious thought on earth. It's taken me places I could not believe. I've traveled parts of the globe, I would not be there except for reading. I've visited the graves of poets in Crete. I've visited Balzac's grave in France. I've gone to graves all over Europe just because I fell in love with these men and women who are no longer alive, who once filled my brain with utter wonder, who wanted me to write like them, who wanted me to make characters and build characters, invent cities, invent people. They were so magnificent people would never be able to keep their hands off my books again like these ones that went before me like these writers who made up my reading life
0: and you're listening to pat conroy and we're spending an hour on this man's life because wait till you hear the audio to come talk about a storyteller and when he opens up about the really difficult difficult life with his father well Is a little bit of that in every father and son relationship and some much more than we'd care to admit. And so when we come back, we're going to hear from the man who wrote The Great Santini, the man who wrote The Prince of Tides, and then the man who wrote his only piece of nonfiction that really hit the bestseller list, the death of Santini, and that's the death of his father, when he really opened up and let it all, let it all out. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We celebrate everything here, including great writing and great literature. More after this. our American stories, and all this week, we're playing the best of the past year, and we're bringing them right back to you.
2: In the tradition of Patton and MacArthur, Bull Meacham lived to be a soldier, but he didn't have a war, so he fought the world around him. They called him the Great Santini.
3: You may not have the privilege of serving under the meanest, toughest, screaming, squadron commander in the Marine Corps me. Has the great Santini ever let his family down?
1: Yes!
3: You don't have trust the great Santini? No! I don't want you to consider me as just your commanding officer. I want you to look on me like I was God. To that special breed of sky devil known and feared throughout the world, Marines! No! Now you're flying with Bull Meacham now. This is the eye of the storm. Welcome aboard.
2: He was a man of war, but it was a time of peace. Hey Dad, are you ever afraid when you fly? Hell yes. That's what makes me so damn good.
0: And that's the trailer of the movie The Great Santini. And Robert Duvall was never better. He may have been as good in The Apostle and several other films, including The Godfather. But I think he'd tell you, Bull Meecham, that character. Well, you saw his character in Apocalypse too, where he played that crazy, crazy soldier sitting in the middle of the. The Killing Fields of Vietnam and Screaming I Love the Smell of Napalm in the Morning. But let me tell you, Bull Meacham, what a character. And Pat Conroy was born on this day in history in 1945. And we're covering his story today and in his words. And before we do that, I want to play a couple of scenes for The Great Santini. And if you have not seen this movie, rent it and you'll love it. And Blythe Danner is amazing in this. And that's Gwyneth Paltrow's mom. Quite an actress. And then Rent, Prince of Tides. And you'll have really gotten a glimpse of the life of Pat Conroy and the work of Pat Conroy because those two movies actually and genuinely reflect the character of the novels. And then it'll make you want to read those books if you're a reader, and even if you're not. Because you will not be able to put them down. Here is Robert Duvall, Bull Meacham, the great Santini, giving a pep talk to his soldiers in that movie.
3: you on deck. Seats, gentlemen. Morning. You may not have the privilege of serving under the meanest, toughest, screaming of squadron commander in the Marine Corps. Me. Now, I don't want you to consider me as just your commanding officer. I want you to look on me like I was... Well, God, if I say something, you pretend it's coming from the burning bush. Now, we're members of the proudest, most elite group of fighting men in the history of the world. We are Marines, Marine Corps fighter pilots. We have no other function. That is our mission. And you're either going to hack it or pack it. Do You read me. In 30 days, I'm going to lead the toughest, flyingest of sons of bitches in the world. The 312 World Squadron will make history, or it will die trying. Now you're flying with Bull Meacham now, and I kid you not, this is the eye of the storm. Welcome aboard.
0: <laughs> Welcome aboard. Carry on. And just moments later in this movie, and in the book, we see this. This man could not treat his family any differently than he could treat his soldiers. And this was, in the end, what the book was really about. Let's take a listen to Duval instilling some discipline into his kids.
3: Okay, Hogs. I've listened to you bellyache about moving to this new town. This said aching will end as a 1530 hours. Will not affect the morale of the squadron henceforth. Do I make myself clear? Yes, yes sir. sir. I know it's rough leave your friends and move every year. But you are marine kids and can chew nails while other kids are sucking cotton candy. And you're Meacham's. is a thoroughbred, a winner all the way. Gets the best grades, wins the most awards and excels in sports. Meacham never gives up. I want you hogs to let this bird know you're here. I want these crackers to wake up and wonder what the hell blew in a town. Okay, Hogs, by nightfall, I want this camp in inspection order. Do you read me loud and clear? Yes, yes sir. sir. I said, do you read me loud and clear? Yes, yes sir. sir. <laughs> Outstanding. Sergeant, dismiss the troops.
1: this mess he does remind me of someone from the movies but it's not rhett butler
0: no it's not and then you would start to see of course there's a little bit of charm there and you're laughing but then that that military discipline turns ugly in the movie and it becomes demented and in the end warped and it destroys the family And Pat Conroy was one of those little boys listening to those kind of lectures. And then the question Pat had in his head, what do I do with this life and this knowledge? And he decides to, well, write about it. And write about it, and write about it. And interestingly enough, though his dad was mean to him, and his dad beat his wife, and his dad was tough on the family and broke the family up and drove the family crazy, he still loved his dad. And in a fascinating discussion, that he had with Ann Patchett in Nashville in 2013. And Ann is another terrific writer. He was with her to talk about the book The Death of Santini. Because in the end, when his dad died, well, he needed to he needed to write about him. Honestly. And this was the hardest book he ever had to write, and it was a piece of non-fiction. This great fiction writer now finally able to tell the real, real unbridled truth about his dad now that he passed. And Conroy tells the story about what it was like to tour with his dad when the books The Great Santini and The Prince of Tides were, well, making him a famous author around this country.
2: What would happen if you and I were talking here tonight, you would see a hulking figure in the background that would appear on stage, he'd break in, and figure out a way to come out and sit there to join the conversation. And eventually, he would take over the conversation. But I got moved when the great Santini came out, and he hated that book with his body and soul. He hated everything about it. He hated my portrait of him as a father, as a husband, as a Marine. He loathed that book. But I was attacked by his family enough that as I was signing the Great Santini and you know, and you know those first books, you just mentioned, you know, I had I think twelve intergalactic sales (laughs) during that season. But I noticed Dad would come and sit beside me. And he got in the habit of signing my books with me. (laughs) Now for for dad, with, you know, he would sign this way with the great Santini. I certainly hope you enjoy my son's work of fiction. And he would underline fiction. <laughs> He'd underline fiction five or six times. And he said, my son certainly has a, an extraordinary imagination. <laughs> and he would sign, oh, lovable, likable Don Conroy, the great Santini himself. This is kind of normal for the great Santini. He did it for every book I wrote after that.
0: Here's more about his dad.
2: One time I had a big signing in Charlotte of four or five hours. Dad was beside me the whole time. And I got to translate this way, and it may be wrong. I thought it was my father who was an articulate man, inarticulate man with love. Um, it was his way of telling me he loved me. Because when I, you know, when the Prince of Tides came out and I said, Dad, what are you signing the Prince of Tides for? And my father in his great modesty said, I am the seed, son. (laughs) (laughs) I am the source. And I said, Dad, you sound like it's a, you know, it's it's a cattle food shop. But... It was his way of participating in a creative event that I came to appreciate very much. What compassion. You feel it bleeding through the pages,
0: even as he's the toughest critic of his own dad. To love a man, to try and understand why that man did what he did. That's why Pat Conroy's work is loved. I love that he said, quote, my dad was an articulate man but inarticulate with love. Don't we all know a few fathers like that? This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life, the work of a great writer, Pat Conroy, author of The Great Santini, The Prince of Tides, both of which were turned into two terrific movies. This is Our American Stories, more on Pat Conroy from Pat Conroy, who was born on this day in history. In Stories. That's Bruce Springsteen singing a goodbye song to his father. It's what's drawn a lot of people to his music. It is certainly what drew people to Arthur Miller's work, the father-son relationships and the strains, and it is most certainly what drew people to Pat Conroy's work, the great Santini and the Prince of Tides in particular, and of course his non-fiction work, The Death of Santini, which was about his father, and so were the other two in very clear and stark terms. And Pat grew up in Georgia, but he was a he was a Marine brat. So he grew up on bases all over the country. And his father, as we learned early on in this hour, was a man who was built for war, but never got to really fight one throughout the childhood of young Pat Conroy. And so the home field, battlefield, was what Pat experienced with his dad. And so we pick it up with his conversation with Ann Patchett in Nashville in 2013. Did dad change because of the fiction? This became the question Ann Patchett had. Did dad learn something reading about himself
2: through his son's eyes? You know, I've never seen a guy change because of a, a work of fiction. But I think Dad made an effort, and my mother divorcing him at the same time. And you know, my father, now here's my father. Okay, son, and I went to talk with Dad, and I said, Dad, and he's weeping, which Dad never did. He's weeping, over I've got divorce papers from your mother. And he's crying, we're at Manuel's Tavern in Atlanta, he's weeping and crying. And I said, Dad, do you see what you did wrong now? Do you understand what you did wrong? And poor Dad going, yeah. And I said, what do you think it was, Dad? And he said, I was way too easy on your mother and the kids. (laughs) I should have cracked down harder. And I look at him from across the table. I said, Dad. Caligula couldn't have cracked that (laughs) heart and he said no no this is he goes to the judge my mother has given the judge a copy of the great Santini (laughs) and said it's all here your honor (laughs) my mother and sister testified on scenes in the great Santini I had invented I had made up so, and Dad gets up in court, and this is in Buford, South Carolina, and he says, You cannot divorce me, Judge. And so the judge, rather surprised, said, Oh, really, why not, Colonel? Because I'm a Roman Catholic. And when the family hear this, we all, and he said, I was married forever, and this court has no power to divorce me and peg he was divorced about 5 minutes later <laughs> but it was dad it was that you know that marine hard charging guy that never changed that was dad and you hear that love in his voice
0: and you hear the audience laughing at something very tragic and not a silly laugh and that's a unique gift and when you read a pat conroy book you laugh a lot at the tragedy he does not play the victim card, and he has no countenance for it, none. What
2: was his first memory? My first memory was being in a high chair, and I was in a base in El Toro. And I remember my father beating my mother, backhanding her to the floor, with her trying to stab him with a butcher knife. And I remember my face, my whole baby face, um, inflamed and I had, you know, I didn't know how to talk then. And what it was inflamed with, I later realized, was hatred. And I didn't know there was an English word for hatred. So I didn't have to go back for that. That is always with me. That lives with me every day. Uh, I, you know, don't have to do research on it, study it. It is there.
0: It is there. Here he is talking with Ann Patchett about the process he went through with his editors when he was submitting the great Santini. And the editors just couldn't believe that a man this tough and this mean existed. And, well, Pat had to take some liberties. Let's take a listen to this exchange.
2: I would write her these things and instantly... She was right back, Pat, no one will believe this character. He's too mean, he's too horrible. You know, you, he's not believable and we will not publish your book. So I kept trying to add scenes and I got my brothers and sisters together and I said, did dad ever screw up and treat us nicely <laughs> when we were growing up? And I, and I was very serious. And we'd think, and, you know, we were seven of us then, and we'd think, and I'd think, and finally they come, no. I said, did you get us a hot dog? Nah. <laughs> take us out for an ice cream cone? Nah. Uh, take us to a ball game? Nah. We could not come up with anything, but Ann Barrett would not believe a guy was knocking us all over the place, hitting us, Beating my mother to a pulp, she would not believe it. So I cut that out and I made up stories that I'd like Dad to have done. He gives his son a flight jacket on his birthday. And I thought, mm-hmm. what a nice thing that would have been. So I enjoyed writing that scene. It never happened. <laughs> then his daughter goes to her first prom, and Dad has roses sent to the house. And so when later I asked Dad, did you like those scenes, Dad? Oh, God, I love those scenes. You know, What a great guy I was. <laughs> and I said, Dad, I made them up. You didn't do any of it. Anything you did nice in the book, I invented.
0: Ouch. But they still stayed together, this father and son team. And it turns out that Pat Conroy, well, when he wrote Prince of Tides, it got a little rougher on Dad, on the father figure. And then when his dad died, well, Pat Conroy was actually finally able to tell the full and complete truth. And when we come back, you're going to hear Pat Conroy talk, well, as starkly as one can about his father, and as humorously, because if you're laughing now, you're going to laugh even harder. The stories he tells are priceless. They're tragic. They're sad. They're funny. Conroy knew how to walk that walk He loved his dad. He didn't judge his dad. He just spoke honestly and plainly about life as he saw it. This is Lee Habib celebrating the life, the work, the fiction, the brutal, beautiful honesty of Pat Conroy writing about his beloved dad, whom he hated and loved simultaneously. More after these messages. Habib, and this is our American stories. And for the hour, the life of Pat Conroy. If you don't know his work, pick it up. Go to Amazon, get the Great Santini, and then read the Death of Santini. Want a work of fiction about his dad, and then when he finally dies, a work of nonfiction. You cannot put down either. And they're funny. They're wickedly funny. They're not silly. And Conroy was born this day in history in 1945. And so we're celebrating his life here on Our American Stories. We love music, we love the arts. We've done a tremendous hour on Martin Scorsese, Al Pacino, and so many other creative types. And we'll be doing many more on literary lions as we go as well. And Let's go back to that Nashville room in 2013 with Ann Patchett, the great writer, interviewing one of her literary heroes, Pat Conroy. We just heard that story about his dad, and Ann Patchett asks a tough question, and here's Pat's rather, I think, sad answer.
2: So do you think you're putting it to rest with this book? Of course not. <laughs> I, I will bring havoc. You know, I am worried that I will bring havoc... And my deathbed, uh, the convoys can't have a wedding, a funeral. We can't do anything normally. None of us.
0: And he says it just so straightforwardly, and he doesn't hate his family. He just, this is the way it is. And we all know families like that, by the way. You get them together and, oh my goodness, there goes the wedding, there goes the baseball game, <laughs> there goes everything. And yet they still get together. So here's a, well, just a ridiculously funny and sad story right out of the death of Santini about his father dying.
2: When dad was actually dying, we split time up with the six kids. Right. And, you know, six-hour intervals because we wanted to give dad a good death. We wanted to, you know, take care of dad and make sure he was comfortable make sure he knew he was loved and all this stuff and i came over you know for a morning shift and i hear my sister carol who's a poet in new york was articulate you know of all of us and i hear her screaming at dad and i walk inside and dad He's gonna, he's gonna be dead in three days, I mean, it's, it's soon. And Carol is screaming this, Anne. You gotta tell me you love me, Dad. You gotta tell me you love me. And she has tears streaming down her th- face. You gotta tell me you're proud of me, Dad. Proud of my life as a poet. You know, I've made a life as a poet. And it's been hard. It's been in New York City. And I've done it by myself. But you got to tell me you love me. And you got to tell me you're proud of me before you die. Now, this is moving to me as anything can be. So I go in. And, of course, I'm the oldest of seven. And I was the, you know, the protector, the lookout, the Rottweiler for the other kids. So I you was... Know, Carol said later he wagged the finger of paternalism <laughs> and so I wagged it at her she comes out and she's just a wreck and just and she's had a lifetime of mental illness she's had a lifetime of estrangement from the family and she comes out and I said Carol it's very important for you to know something dad is dying he's not going deaf You don't have to scream at him. And Carol is a wreck. And she says, Pat, he's never told me he loves me in his whole life. He never told me he's proud of me in his whole life. I've written poems. I've dedicated poems to Dad over and over again. I've done everything I could to make him proud of me. I've needed him my whole life just to tell me he loved me. And does he ever tell you that? And I said, Carol, to tell you the truth, every day the phone rings. And I pick it up, and it's dad. This has been going on for 30 years. And the phone rings, and it's dad on the phone. And I said, hey, dad, how you doing? And he said, Pat, I just have to tell you this. I love you so much, I cannot even tell you or express it in words. And Pat, I am so proud of your writing that it makes me want to fall to my knees in gratitude for the day that you were born. And I only wish I could feel the same way about Carol. (laughs) He
0: finishes this story.
2: So, I finally, I said, Carol, I'm jo- joking. Dad cannot tell us we lo- he loves us. He cannot tell us, you know, he's proud of us. It's the great Santini dying in there. It's not Bill Cosby, okay? We know that. We've got to learn how to translate Dad. And, you know, the translation is, it, it isn't that hard. Dad has tried to show us he's loved us in his own way. Well, I get Carol to come back in. (laughs) So we are sitting there in my redneck brother-in-law, Bobby Joe. (laughs) Now, I ain't got to explain to no Tennessee audience what a redneck is, okay? (laughs) But when I tell you Bobby Joe makes your relatives look like Rockefellers, (laughs) and you cannot... Figure out who your brothers and sisters are going to marry. That is part of life, is most difficult. Bobby Joe comes in. <laughs> and his redneck as they come, and he looks over my father and he goes, Hey, old man, how you feeling? Dad would be dead in two and a half days. I hear him say in a weakened voice, I love you, Bobby
3: Joe.
2: (laughs) I'm proud of you, Bobby Joe. And my sister goes off like a Roman candle and she goes for his throat with both hands. And both of us have to pull Carol off my dying father.
0: And that came out of The Death of Santini, this remarkable book that Ann Patchett was discussing with Pat Conroy. And here is Ann talking about her thoughts about Pat Conroy's book and this exchange.
2: But Ann, this is the kind of thing that, you know, that haunts me and follows me and Hunts me down whether I want to or not. This is so confusing though, and this is your brilliance. You're making us laugh.
1: You're making us laugh. I laughed my head off through this book, and it is a tragedy. I mean, it's the
2: saddest book in the world, and I was gasping. I was laughing so hard. See, Anne, you know, I cannot. Uh, see, and I, you know, I t- tell you that you know, these are horrible stories. You know, when my brother, I had a brother commit suicide. It was the worst things that ever happened to us. He was the youngest brother. He was a paranoid schizophrenic. He leaps off a building, fourteen-story building, in Columbia, South Carolina, and he is a disaster. Ian. I mean, we have to bury him almost the next day. Because it's the middle of August, and his head is just, everything has come apart. And they scrape him up. And we've got to get this thing together. And my father, you know, and dad, you know, he gets on the phone. I said, Dad, are you okay? And my father, again, is crying so hard. And he says to me, Initially, broke my heart. hand he says, Pat, I lost my baby boy. You don't know what it's like to lose your baby,
0: and you don't. And then he was asked why he didn't write this book when he was young, this first raw piece of nonfiction, and he gave a great answer.
2: Okay, here's what would have happened, and I can answer this honestly, him. Father Jim is at the podium. We have come here to celebrate the life and death of Pat Conroy. He was killed by my brother, who is now in federal penitentiary, in a fit of rape. I could not have done it when I was younger. I was still too full of denial. I had to go through therapy. I had to find out things about myself I did not know. I'd have to find out things about myself I hated, and I couldn't have written it then.
0: And that's the truth, and that is what is so compelling about this final work. He needed his father to die in order to really dig in. And we're talking about the life of Pat Conroy for the hour. He was born this day in history in 1945. And again, that last book, a piece of nonfiction called The Death of Santini, You can just read that alone and know everything you need to know about this author, his life, and his father's life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Pat Conroy's story, born this day in history.